Well, hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting once again. Uh, we're coming to you from all of our various studios, and we're broadcasting via the radio on Saga 960 AM, and also right there in your podcast app. We've got uh, our podcasting 2.0 structure that allows us to put out the content, and you can support us value for value using a modern podcast app uh, over at uh, newpodcastapps.com. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki coming in hot and heavy and, and uh, finally we're back at the table together i'm joined by my colleague david clement who is um up and down and all over the gta the greater toronto area david how goes it good man oh, it's going well it's going well they uh i don't think they prepare you enough when you do buy a home for all of the hoops and craziness that is involved it's um it's way more intrusive and complicated than do you have the money and bring us the money <laughs> so I, I yeah i can imagine so um for, for the listeners here i guess david is on, on the road to home ownership he'll be joining an elite club uh, particularly for members of our age cast and uh big lifestyle change um instead of you know doing things around the apartment he'll be raking leaves come yeah, here mowing lawns mowing the backyard that i've done that. here comes the big question here comes a big question actually are you going to be a uh outdoor equipment gasoline and oil mix guy or are you going to try to go all electric um probably gas probably gas i mean the yard that we're, we have is going to be really big it, like the lot is like a third of an acre so to try and run that i don't know i don't even know if i would get a full charge to cut the whole lawn so probably oh, yeah a lot of them are battery powered yeah yeah I, i've actually i don't know if i've seen battery powered lawnmowers i'm sure there are many no I've they only exist the plug-ins yeah yeah they exist they exist um they're becoming more common especially with like smaller lawns but i'd be taking a risk and the whole idea of running i'd need like a 90 foot extension cord and then knowing me, I'd probably like trip over it and fall into the lawnmower or run over the cord with the lawnmower. Something stupid. <laughs> um, it, it could happen. Um, you never know. There, there's probably a lot of a lot of things that are out there. But hey, it's a strange world out there. Indeed. <laughs> um, so, David, it's been a while since we've been back at the uh, mics together. There's a little bit of traveling involved. I was on the vacay. Yeah, um, we had uh, time when I was in Davos as well. Um, I know you've got a lot of stuff going on. We've been kind of all over the map. Yeah. Uh, some things to catch up on. Jeez. Uh, what are we? February. Uh, second week, right? Second week of February 2023. We've had some uh, interesting coming and goings. We've had some great articles that have been published uh, for, with our colleagues over there in ConsumerChoiceCenter.org and uh, across the entire sphere. We had some interesting commentaries and interviews and uh, we will have an interview with uh, dr jan altasar of mm -hmm. onefact.org talking about uh, open sourcing health intelligence and healthcare competition which will be very interesting in our second and third segments and uh, we talked a lot about alcohol in canada and that two drink maximum yeah uh, i was kind of interesting i've actually uh since i've been back on the the continent i've i've uh, i've followed the the rules pretty strictly <laughs> <laughs> Mostly just because I, ha I haven't had an opportunity, but uh, so far, I think the Canadian government would approve of my actions. Well, you know what? It's been fun. It's the, the best response I got to the piece I, wrote, I just recently wrote 
because there have been a bunch of scandals of like how much booze is billed to taxpayers on a lot of these um, government flights. It is unbelievable, the by the way. The prime minister's office. Oh, we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars worth of booze. And someone responded to my article and said, ha ha, I'll listen to the government guidelines when when the governor general or Trudeau's entourage can have less than two drinks on a flight. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I thought that was just like perfect, perfect. Yeah. And I've, um, I, you know, when I was in, um, on vacation, I was on the Island of Mauritius and, uh, Mauritius is actually one of the richest countries in Africa. Oh, I didn't know that. It's uh, one of the richest countries in Africa. It actually has the most stable democracy and has one of the highest uh, incomes. Um, and it happens to be an island nation off the coast of Madagascar. So it's actually pretty far from Africa, but still considered <laughs> Africa. And why it's great, and we've gone now twice as a family. Why it's interesting is just the, the cultural mishmash. It's um, essentially many religions put together, uh, but it's essentially Hindus who speak French. Whoa. So for, uh, completely bilingual and oftentimes trilingual people. Um, so basically everything in Canada, um, except all the provinces, but Quebec. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, it's really interesting because they, they speak English and French. They learn that in school and then they have their own Creole uh, sort of language. Interesting. Uh, which, again, is like Hindus and Indian, um, Indian ethnic folks that are that are uh, talking to each other like this. This is a make, makes for a very interesting time. And uh, I can only imagine what uh, that Creole language uh, would be like to be competent in that and to speak and, and read and write. And um, I tell you, David, I think I needed a translator after listening to this State of the Union address by uh, <laughs> Joe Biden uh, down in the United States. It's a good segue. Eh? Yeah, very good segue. <laughs> did, you see, did you see what the Donald put on, um, on Truth Social? I did not. I, I don't have the account. What would uh, give us the uh, the Trump correspondent view here? Yeah. So the Trump correspondent view is um, <laughs> okay. Hold on. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it was David, David has to pull up. He's got to pull up his Trump social. Well, account. yeah, I got to pull up my Twitter. But maybe the tweet was deleted. I'm not sure. But I'm paraphrasing. But apparently there was a screenshot flying around. Oh yeah, here it is. This is Donald Trump on True Social about Joe Biden. He goes, look, he worked hard tonight. It's not a natural thing for him. It never was, never will be. But you got to give him credit for trying. I disagree with him on most of his policies, but he put into words what he felt, and he ended up the, he ended up the evening far stronger than he began. Give him credit for that. Many things weren't mentioned that should have been, but that's for another time. I've done a little clip. Perhaps you'd like to watch it. He's doing much better now. Far fewer stumbles. <laughs> <laughs> wow i mean that's about as good as that's about as good as cnn commentary it's like who trump taking the high road here like who had that in their 2023 bingo card i think the problem and this was a big problem during the debates and it likely will be a problem as well for um against any opponent of trudeau in canada is that when expectations are set so low all yeah. a person has to do is go in, not stumble, don't make like a, a terrible mistake, and yeah. you just look golden. Yeah. And I think that, that's exactly kind of what happened, even yeah. though there were many moments where there was just a lot of uh, random yelling, 
uh, very strange affairs and a very active back and forth heckling between the crowd, uh, Congress peoples and, and the president. Yeah, it was it was more like a comedy club in that sense where you're getting heckled. Well, it, felt, by- it, it was like a comedy club or it felt like parliament, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, it did. It did. Um, my my favorite Trump comment, which he then later, I, I don't. What is a post on Truth Social called? I think it's just a post. I don't think they came up with anything original. Oh, okay. Yeah, he goes. His wife Jill looking absolutely lovely tonight in a beautiful purple dress, clapping and applauding with great enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> I, he didn't even mention the kiss or anything like that. No, he didn't mention the kiss. That was stupid. Was it, that was kind of weird, wasn't it? You know, there are certain peoples who do this um, kiss on the lips thing. Um, I wouldn't say it's a, it's an upper elite class thing. So I, I'm assuming that's kind of what it was. I don't know. Uh, what's his name there? Doug. Um, Emhoff. Emhoff. I, I don't know where, like, where he went to school or where he grew up or something like this. I, I, I would assume it's something a bit hoity-toity. And... Um, yeah, I mean, Joe Biden is still teaching, according to Joe Biden. She's still a full-time teacher. That's what he said. <laughs> um, so that was on. I do want to talk about um, Canadian stuff real quick, David, because I have been uh, checking in. And, yep. of course, we've had uh, very good um, Canadian content the last couple of weeks, at least with the alcohol policy and everything that's happening. Um, this entire uh, triggering about uh, whether Canada is, quote, broken has been a big affair, and I'm surprised it took on so much. Um, yeah. I don't know how, how much you've followed that or yeah. thought that was interesting, but it's, it's just strange to continue to see a liberal government that has been in power so long continue to try to stay relevant, and I, I just I don't understand how these people still have steam. Well, it's a hell of a strategy. So, like, Canada is broken. It's probably a little over the top. But in regards to how Canadians deal with government, right, we, we're coming off the heels of all the lockdowns and the craziness and vaccine mandates and whatever you thought about that. Even if you were in favor of them, you knew that they, like, they were an incredible inconvenience. You can't you try and go get a passport. It's a disaster. Um, you got CERB money through the pandemic and they're trying to claw it back. It's a disaster. They're raising interest rates and your variable rate mortgage is going through the roof. That's a disaster. And what's happening with this home heating stuff? Because there's all these things about the climate tax or the, sorry, carbon tax and all these additional costs. That's pretty heavy too. Yeah, they're adding new things, like new taxes on on energy usage, um, which is just going to make heating your home or cooling your home more expensive. That's a disaster. I mean, and then even tr- what in comparison, what may seem trivial, price of booze going up over 6%. It's like at every turn, Canadians' engagement or relationship with the government feels broken. And um, it's like, well, yeah, I think Canada as a country, are we broken? No, it's a great country. It's still a great place to live. But in terms of how p- people are, um, engaging with government or feeling the pain of government policy, it certainly feels broken to a lot of people. Um, you have to be in a certain income class to just be kind of flying above the clouds and think, you know, everything is fine. We're, we're just great. 
Oh yeah. Um, and, and some of this that bothers me is like when pressed about it, like when pressed about it, Trudeau is like, yeah, you know, like hard economic times, but, but we're just going to get through it together. And it's like, we are, are you invite me. Are you invite me to stay there with you, bud? Or like what? We, we actually, in fact, are not going to get through this together at all. Um, and like that kind of like care bear, like, yeah, language just doesn't sell anymore to the public because everything is more expensive. It's getting harder to like food banks are overrun. That doesn't even include crime for Christ's sake. There was a woman randomly shot in the head in Burlington the other day. There's carjackings that are happening at a higher, I think violent. If you, yeah, I'd call that violent, violent crimes up like 31%. We have all of these weird scenarios where violent offenders are let out on loose terms early it's like, yeah, everything, if it feels like everything the government touches is broken. Um, and so the idea that we're just going to like, oh, we're going to get along and we're going to, we're going to get through this together. Um, yeah, I don't think so, bud. <laughs> I don't think so at all. No. Indeed. And, um, you know, with the, uh, speaking of the, the system, I um, picked up uh, my daughter's uh, passport, Canadian passport, mm -hmm. uh, today at the embassy, and uh, applied for the uh, cer uh, certificate of citizenship for my other daughter. Uh, so the government tells you estimated wait time for uh, acquiring a certificate of citizenship. This is uh, my daughter has a right to Canadian citizenship from the day she was born. Yep. So essentially, this is just proof that she's a Canadian citizen. So what, what do you estimate that time period is? Uh, that the government lists on their own website for how long you should wait for this document to appear in your mailbox for someone from abroad um it's actually the same doesn't matter if you're um in uh oh. toronto or abroad 90 days 15 months what <laughs> oh my goodness so and that's shorter that's shorter than what i i we experienced 20 months um previously for with oh. child number one so uh, that's I, I will get. I'll give it to you that the passport was was um, at least quicker. That that was uh, about two months. Okay, even being abroad. Yeah, many many different aspects of that are uh, broken and not looking good. But we have uh, reasons to uh, be hopeful. And uh, our next guest, Dr. Jan Altasar, will give us that. CEO of One Fact. Stay tuned to Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on uh, Saga 960 AM and across North America. And of course, we're right there in your pocket on your podcast feed. I'm very delighted to introduce our next guest. We're speaking with Dr. Jan Altosar. He is the Chief Executive Officer of OneFact.org. They've got a lot of great projects that they've got going on over there, um, including one that I'm very interested to hear about, Payless.Health, a search engine and open database of all hospital prices in the United States. And uh, Jan himself is no slouch, um, a fellow Canadian, um, Estonian, uh, American, uh, a traveler, um, AI enthusiast and expert, and uh, now a guest on Consumer Choice Radio. Jan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Yael. It's uh, it's an honor to be here, and uh, I love the photo I have of you pouring uh, or receiving champagne on a mountain in Davos where we met. So I'm 
Happy to be here. And very, very well. Yeah, we had plenty of uh, content referring to uh, Davos in the in the weeks past. So uh, you are our one uh, win from that uh, experience and that we were able to meet and uh, get acquainted and then uh, catch up here and uh, get your voice on the radio and all over the social media channels. And we can talk more about your great project. Um, so why we connected at first is I love the idea of anything we can do to make healthcare a lot better. Um, there's a lot of articles that are going on right now around the UK, the National Health Service, and there's a lot of issues there related to not just funding and waiting times and everything else. Um, but I think the US has a very unique problem when it comes to healthcare, and that it's cost, who pays for treatment or medicines, and essentially no one really knowing uh, what, what the price is of anything. So if you could just give us a background, you know, what is onefact.org all about? What is this uh, project Payless Health and, and sort of uh, what unique solution are you bringing to the table here? Of course. So one, I'm, as we're still figuring out what one fact is, I think of it as finding one tiny little world detail and using that to affect the change that we want to see and doing so in an open source, transparent way to invite criticism and constructive feedback and as an example of a one fact project then we can start with the fact that you just mentioned which is if you go to a doctor in the u.s and you ask how much is this going to cost me it's very very hard to get an answer and that's despite the government trying to support laws around this of helping consumers understand how much they can pay hospitals now get big fines if they don't post their prices online but most people I know, like the doorman downstairs, when I got up here to start recording, he said, the doctor said it would be covered by insurance for liposuction, but it was not. And he received a lot of bills and spent a lot of time fighting that. So no matter where I look or who I talk to or my own experiences, every time that question is asked, then that one fact becomes, well, why don't consumers get price transparency? Why don't consumers get a choice in deciding like oh it's not for me i can't afford it or yes i can medicaid covers it it's really complicated so what we're doing is taking public data that's public by federal rule and transforming that to a standard format and posting it on payless.health so it's early days we got our first grant from columbia university and stanford university we're using the kinds of artificial intelligence tools that i developed during my phd and postdoc and we're using those AI tools to standardize this information and convey it in easy to understand language to anyone in the United States to hopefully give them that choice back. And same for the doctors, same for the nurse practitioners or anybody else interfacing with the medical system and relating that to actual health outcomes at the hospital. So not only do you get a choice about can you afford this treatment, but you also get to see how people are being treated at those sites of care. And in, in regards to transparency, are there any maybe examples that listeners should be aware of um, where we do have more transparency on costs, whether it be individual hospital systems in the U.S. or maybe other systems um, outside of the U.S. that, that many aren't uh, familiar with? Well, Canada comes to mind as an example to some degree, like every province in Canada has a standard set of prices. Now there's some wiggle room where if a hospital is overburdened, then they could subcontract to say like specialty 
commercial for-profit sites for elective surgery. So I would think Canada is one example where the prices are public with a bit of conditions and caveats depending on where you are. If you're in Ontario then and your surgery is delayed by six months for hip replacement, then that might get subcontracted to an outside vendor and it might be hard to figure out the price. But for the most part, I think Canada is a good example of where things are public and that often helps. Like I remember one case in Toronto where a doctor was giving, I forget, it starts with an M, mephistoprone or something. It was a way to induce labor in women. And he was giving essentially part of the morning after pill to induce labor because of the incentive structure that would compensate him financially for the number of deliveries that he made as a doctor in the Toronto area. So I think part of the reason that story came to light and we learned that this doctor was doing horrific things and inducing labor and causing all these horrible outcomes in women without their consent was because of that transparency, that that incentive structure the Ontario government instituted to reward doctors financially for every delivery they had that led to that outcome. So I think there there are some examples worldwide where transparency helps uncover wrongdoing medically and gives consumers choice. Because if you know that doctor's name, you're not going to go there, given his medical history. Yeah, not a good uh, Yelp review on that one. Uh, again, we're speaking <laughs> yeah. with uh, Jan Altasar, the CEO of uh, OneFact.org. And uh, what's, what's interesting about uh, your group, Jan, is you can go on the uh, GitHub uh, fairly open source here and you can look at uh, all the different code all the different websites that you guys are launching the different projects that you're involved in uh, and then you got your own git uh, for all of the different uh, database info you know so i can just click here and, and easily uh, peruse around in the database and i can look at you know whatever uh, hospital in alabama and the city of ozark and i can get you know whatever price on on x or y percent i think this is something that is obviously needed and I think your organization is, is sort of the starting point. Um, but from, from this, who do you think you're, you're going to be helping the most? Is this information uh, to be kind of drawn out directly to consumers? Is this something that you would see the insurers perhaps using? Because um, we can talk about different incentives there. Uh, but, but sort of uh, who would be your, your ideal um, sort of customer in the end for this entire project? First and foremost, I think our duty as a 501c3 charitable organization in the United States, we have that determined official sounding determination from the Internal Revenue Service. Our duty is our charitable purpose, which is to support consumers and support patients. Touche. Then yes. maybe if people want to use the data to negotiate better rates for with insurers and hospitals, if doctors want to negotiate a better contract from the hospital they work at, then maybe they could support our data. But first and foremost, the data is so complicated that we need to get this out to consumers to just help them understand how to pay less for their health care. So if you go to help.payless.health, you can see some example pages where we're trying to work with professional patient advocates and write guides on how to use this wealth of data. Like how do you find a therapist? How do you find cheaper prescriptions? And as you mentioned, yeah, like everything is public that we do. So you can even use our source code for the website that's public in our version control system called Git. 
and recreate the website. So if someone doesn't like what we're doing, if someone thinks they can better support consumers, they could take what we've done and do it themselves. So I think we've designed it in such a way to encourage the broadest possible use cases with our open source public licenses to get this into the hands of as many consumers as possible across the country. And primarily the people who are most incentivized to use this information are folks on Medicaid and folks making less than 50K in household income. So that's our target audience in a way, but I don't like using the, that kind of word, it's just marketing speak. So the people we wanna reach are disadvantaged communities that have trouble paying for healthcare. The number of people in medical debt in the United States is about 50% of the population, 150 million people. And so all those people can benefit from this free open source material that we're building. And I'm really excited for that use case and to use tools like ChatGPT or AI to communicate everything you just saw in that database in an easy to understand high school level of English manner. Like, you go to this hospital, you pay this amount, here's the health outcomes. It's not rocket science. And I think if we're not solving that use case, we're perpetuating the system of insurers fighting hospitals, fighting patients. So that's, that's our hope, is use the public as leverage and use our network of journalists that we work with as leverage to get this information into the hands of people with the most leverage collectively. But it's a very hard social, technical, legal problem to design for. So we're actually working with a Toronto brand strategy agency called Lifelong Crush to help deliver this message in a trustworthy, safe, efficacious, irreverent, hopefully playful, if it can be playful, way and figuring out how to write these millions or even billions of web pages at scale with the help of AI. And so, I mean, you've mentioned your, like who the 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 ideal audiences for, for this, what, um, I guess who would be against it? Who's on the other side of this? Who is resistant to this type of change? To some degree, all of us. And I, I'm thinking of legal terms here, like fiduciary responsibility to stakeholders. And what I mean when I say all of us is that most people I know have their money invested somewhere. And one of the best investments is a standard and poor index of the 500 uh, top companies in the United States. And in that index fund, there's a lot of healthcare companies. And what I mean when I say all of us should be against it, what we're doing financially is that our money and our return on that investment, which has averaged about 10% a year, year over year for the past few decades, that return is going to go down the more public this information becomes and the more of a free market there is in healthcare. And so it is, it will, it is creating cognitive dissonance in me to some degree, because I know my money is invested in the S&P. I know the returns that are possible from insurance companies like United or Blue Cross Blue Shield or the other heavyweights in the US healthcare space. And I know that my friends who work at hospitals, like I worked at a hospital the past few years, they're making money and they need to pay the bills to provide service. So if though if their prices become transparent, other hospitals get to negotiate better rates. So I think there are a lot of 
stalwarts in the space who are against this data and especially the health outcomes associated with the price data becoming public. And I think it's our duty to do this in an open source way and in as public a manner as possible by working with journalists, by working with community organizations to understand how people are th navigating this because it's a huge set of ethical dilemmas, legal dilemmas, social dilemmas of how one person might decide to take action and go to their hospital's charity care department. But that one person is in this complex web of incentives at the hospital level, insurer level, doctor level, personal level. And I view it as our responsibility in providing this data to the public to understand that whole stack of social, technical, legal aspects of releasing this data, doing so with AI at scale to understand like how do we all navigate this cognitive dissonance of like we'll get better returns if we hide this data in our parents retirement portfolio or in the teachers union of america retirement portfolio so it's it's really tricky and i'm just learning to think about this so thank you for bearing with me yeah and i think there's a lot to learn here um you know just clicking around on the database um just i just picked a sort of a random hospital follow the data go all the way and you know, you're I able to get that. a kind of JSON file where you're able to get, you know, the prices of some things, but obviously they have a big old section. Um, it seems at most of the hospitals where it's like, well, you know, we'll get you your real estimate if you click here and you get in contact with, you know, the hospital billing people. And, and again, this is forgetting um, just the, the huge role of insurers, both private and public. And, you know, I would assume that you would have a lot of interest from many of the uh, insurance companies. And, and, you know, I will say as someone who's written about this and uh, studied a lot, there's there are a lot of issues that come with the insurance companies and their role as sort of middlemen in this. And I think there's always a role for insurance, no doubt. Um, consumers should have any type of uh, emergency care and whatever they can get, uh, depending on the system that they live under. Uh, but still, you know, there, it is very true that, you know, it's not in the incentive necessarily of, of many of the actors in the medical space to have all of this out in the open and public. And we saw that debate during the Trump administration when this was discussed at the federal level, when this law actually was passed and the hospitals were required to put this information online. And the, the arguments back then were, well, we'll be actually putting more work and effort into putting the prices online and then we won't even really be able to tell the truth because we still have to reflect upon you know our own needs and on that day in the hospital if there are resources we don't have products there's always there's always these different types of issues that are very prickly and i think that that's one thing that i i'd love to hear you know because i your background is obviously in physics machine learning ai computers all this kind of stuff and you're you've transitioned into healthcare you know is, is it as easy as a binary ones and zeros uh coming into this I think it is. And you just saw that it's a JSON file. I don't even know what JSON stands for. I would have to Google it. But if I take that JSON and I ask ChatGPT or Claude or Bard or whatever Google comes out with to compete with ChatGPT, I say, give me the description of this JSON snippet that Yael just looked at it will do something. I don't know if it'll be good, if it'll be reliable, but I trust the ability of large language models such as ChatGPT to help make sense of 
large amounts of data, maybe not easily accessible data, but in our logo, you can see there's a piece missing from that hierarchy of needs. Kind of looks like a doorstop, but it's at an angle, and that's our leverage. So our leverage is the ability of AI to find patterns in large data sets. And even if you don't understand that large amount of data that you can click through, find in a public database or download from a hospital, we trust our ability to provide a free open source service to help you make sense of it. And we trust the ability of health advocates to help make sense of it. So I think that's what we're banking on. And we're starting to see it pay off. And in terms of hospitals finding it maybe hard to provide this data, like we can help them. It's not hard to put a JSON file up. Like in our first review of the database that we collected the past few months, we saw that many, many hospitals have a PDF up or ha don't even have a JSON or CSV up as is required by federal rules. So they're at risk of getting fined. So if it's federal rule, it's my job now as CEO of the One Fact Foundation to reach out to those hospitals and let them know, hey, I want to save you money. I don't want you to get fined. It's actually really easy with our open source tools to take the information that might be too hard for your in-house team of medical informatics folks to work out, send it to me. We'll help you publish it. We'll link it to your health outcomes that are also public by law. Because if Medicaid or Medicare covers part of the hospital service, they're required to report certain metrics. And so I don't think it's rocket science. And I think tools that we're seeing blow up now in the public sphere, like ChatGPT, are only going to make it easier for non-experts to work with this data. And that's part of the reason we're teaching free open source classes on AI, on data thinking, on large language models, to empower more consumers to work with this data and figure out what they want to do and decide for themselves, like, is this too much of a burden for my hospital if I'm able to do this on my laptop? I don't know. Now, there's a lot to think about there. Uh, again, we're speaking with Dr. Jan Altosar. Uh, he is the CEO of OneFact.org, talking a lot about the healthcare transparency uh, that we have in the United States, uh, specific to hospital pricing. Uh, this is, um, you know, it is something that many of us have are, have had to deal with or do deal with in, in obviously some of the most stressful times of our lives. And, you know, the fact that you've been able to work through all of this and um, what you mentioned about the new AI tools, uh, I think you made a, a very good point. You know, these are just the building blocks because it's not going to be every consumer that's going to, you know, take that JSON file uh, from your site and the, or from the hospital website, you know, plug it in, do whatever. At some point, someone will develop a good enough app that you'll be able to do that. It'll be an easy search function and you'll get that calculator and it'll come up and maybe it like pings your checking account and you can say, oh, there's, you know, there's enough here. Or um, if people do have their insurance hooked in, they'll be able to do that as well. Um, I'm wondering for uh, some of the, because uh, you mentioned the Medicare, you know, Medicaid um, hospitals and ha have there been any interest from perhaps uh, private medical facilities or foundations or something for, for some of this project? Because I would assume they also have an interest in putting out uh, some of this information, not just for competition, but also, you know, for prestige sake. I'm wondering if what, what that divide is like, because the, the public-private hospital debate is, is a bit more 
um, present in the United States than it would be, you know, an example for an example in the UK or a place like Canada, even. The lines are very, very blurry of what is public and what is private in the United States. And I'm learning about this now because the One Fact Foundation is legally a 501c3 charitable purpose corporation determined by the Internal Revenue Service. That said, the Internal Revenue Service frowns on nonprofits or 501c3 determined entities that release open source code because open source code can be used by anyone around the world for any purpose, business or not, and make money. So the IRS says, hey, if you're building open source software, no, who cares if it's for transparency, for empowering consumers? The IRS says, hey, we could tax this. You cannot release this through your 501c3. So we are what's called a contract hybrid in legal terms. So we have a sister limited liability company whose only purpose is to release our open source software that we build at the nonprofit. And this is becoming a common legal structure. For example, the Signal Foundation that builds the Signal encrypted messaging app that I encourage everyone to try out. If you look on the app store, it'll say Signal Messenger LLC. It will not say Signal Foundation 501c3. So I bring that up to illustrate the complexities legally of calling something public or private. These are standard terms, but very hard to understand practically. As another example, like I went to school at Princeton, which is the richest school in terms of an endowment. Like Princeton, just off the returns of its endowment, tens of billions of dollars could make school free for everyone who wants to go to Princeton now and in perpetuity. But it doesn't do that. Who cares if it's status games? I'm just saying that to illustrate the complexities of this place is run like a hedge fund and hospitals in New York have endowments that are in the billions of dollars. And those are also managed by former hedge fund managers or quant traders. So it starts to look very blurry if you understand that a 501c3 public charitable purpose hospital in New York City has an endowment in the billions of dollars, invests in venture capital backed firms and startups building AI for medical diagnosis or whatever. and treats its employees as inventors essentially and then gets a stake in the patents that they provision like friends at new york university langone medical center they built ai and wanted to release it that helps doctors make decisions say around covid or radiology but they were prevented from doing so partly because of the strong patent protection that an institution needs to pay the bills so even though it's public the lines become very blurry when an institution starts needing to pay the bills, starts needing to protect intellectual property. And even if the intent of the researchers or inventors creating this type of software, whether it's AI or anything to help make healthcare better or give consumers choice, it, I don't know how to answer that question of what is public, what is private. So in terms of interest, I think the interest is everywhere like everyone needs a piece of the pie, like say doctors need to negotiate with their hospitals and their negotiations are a lot easier when they know like how much osteopathy is. If I'm an osteopath, I want to see what the reimbursement rate is for osteopathy at any hospital that might want to hire me. And I could use that data to negotiate. So we've seen interest from private provider groups, from private hospitals, from insurance companies, 
from people who provide services all around that. And I think part of the reason we got on the number one spot on Hacker News, like a tech website, is because of that. Like so many people have an incentive to care about this data, starting from all of us who don't know how much we're going to pay. And we don't know the quality of care and the current transparency metrics are not transparent at all. Like the United States News and World Report gives a ranking of hospitals and that's what you see on hospital billboards. And the billboards cost a lot of money to put up. Like I got some quotes, it's like seventy to $100,000 a month at prime areas of New York City. And what do you see on those hospital billboards? You see we're a four-star hospital, according to the US News and World Report. But that metric is not exactly transparent. 30% of it is votes. And part of it is quality metrics. Like say quality of care might be measured by readmission or the likelihood of being readmitted to a hospital. Part of it might be the sepsis rate, but a good part of it is votes. And how do humans vote? They vote on what they like and what sounds reasonable. So we're slowly taking this hierarchical, institutionalized, politicized, financialized, but capitalized model of care, slowly taking that approach that you've just seen, Yael, of you can click through anywhere and see what we do to publish our website, see what we do to publish those metrics. There's no voting in the calculation of these things. It's just, this is the price and this is the outcome. And that's where I think we're headed and that's why we're starting to see interest in this. And so speaking of votes, um, we have about two minutes or so before um, before we have to wrap up. But um, what if of any has the has the response been politically to the type of work you guys are doing? Politically, it's often driven by human interest and humans at the end of the day who suffer from this set of incentives. Like I finally got around to watching a movie called Aftershock that's on Hulu and it centers around black men whose partners have died often related to the incentives to give C-sections to black women in the United States. And it's a heartbreaking movie. Like I'm tearing up just thinking about it because the incentives are so, I need the bleep, like effing clear when you see that visual of who's on Medicaid in the US, usually poor people, that correlates with race to some degree. So the movie focuses on the experience of black men who are now widows because of a medical system that incentivizes giving high risk surgery to their partners who are pregnant with their child and then ignore their symptoms of blood clots that lead to complications and their partners died. And so it's a incredibly powerful movie that I think is starting to create a lot of change. And that's tied to the financialization of our health, where if a hospital knows it can give a surgery to a black woman and make twice the amount of money than intended delivery, like twice the amount of money, it's very clear what the incentive is. Like you're not like, obstetrics departments lose money at most hospitals. And if you see that number of, okay, we can make twice the amount of money from a 30 minute procedure, who cares what the patient wants? Wow. And so I think yeah. that's what we're starting to see. 
Yeah, and I think more, many more people will hear about this, and I would encourage all the listeners to go to onefact.org. Check that out. Uh, again, we've been speaking with Dr. Jan Altosar. i got to say there's a lot of stuff that we learned here uh, on the program, and uh, I think there's, uh, there's some good calls to action here. So, uh, Dr. Jan, Me too. it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you so much, Yael. It's great to be here. Hit me up anytime. Jan at onefact.org.